One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Amy. We here at Clever are taking some time to bake you up a batch of exciting new episodes. They'll be out of the oven and ready for your consumption in September. In the meantime, please enjoy one of our favorite episodes from the recent past. Definitely nutritious enough for a second listen, or if you missed it the first time, this is the universe telling you you need to hear it to feed your inspiration. So here you go. And as always, thanks for listening. We love you. In order to save yourself, sometimes you have to use and leverage the very thing that's oppressing you to actually free yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Marquise Stilwell. Marquise is the founder and principal of Open Box, a people-centered design consultancy, co-founder of Open Docs, an art and design-oriented documentary filmmaking company, and co-founder of Deem Journal, a print magazine and online platform that centers design as a social practice. Additionally, he's on the board of many other arts-driven and civic enterprises, such as Lowline Underground Park, Art Matter, Urban Ocean Lab, and Creative Capital, among others. His curiosity and passion for people and spaces has grown into an agile and effective practice of creating systems and formulas designed to make built environments better for all people. An advocate of social fitness, he's a graceful pro at listening, holding space, being vulnerable, and navigating change. Here's Marquise. My name is Marquise Stowell. I live in New York City, and I consider myself a designer. Bigger than that, I consider myself a catalyst for building communities across design, art, and culture. I always love to set things up, though, by understanding a bit about how you came to be you. Can you paint the picture of your childhood for us? Where'd you grow up? Definitely a a Midwestern kid living in a big city now. Um, I was shaped by small town Midwestern principles of being a great neighbor, you know, always um, looking out for others. And my dad was a minister growing up. And so a PK kid um, as well. He was also over community action and Head Start, which has really brought up a lot of the, what it means to be an an activist. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was also introduced to art and design at a very young age by grandfather, though he worked more of a blue-collar industry job. He was also an artist, and I spent a lot of time going to our local art museum, staring at paintings and um, understanding design and culture through that lens. Wow. I mean, I'm a Midwestern kid, too. I grew up in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Yeah, I'm not too far from that. I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. Okay. You know, in between Cleveland and Columbus. So I spent my formal years there. And then I I happened that I went to high school out in Denver, Colorado. But so I've traveled fairly, but I, my formal years is definitely a Midwestern kid and upper part of Ohio. You said you went to high school in Denver. So does that mean there was a big move? Yeah, there was a period of time. Um, where, you know, family decided to move out to Denver. And that was a remarkable time for me as well, learning how to be the new kid, learning Mm. about the transitions um, into a new community. But it also opened me up to so many new ways of thinking, um, being out West, which is very different than Ohio. And definitely provided something for me 
that I did not have living in a small town where I could reimagine myself and reinvent who I am. Oh, that's really interesting because that's at, in adolescence when you're kind of sort of we're all fishing around for our adult identities then anyway. So you sort of were able to enact yours on a new stage. Yeah, definitely. definitely. That's what I believe those transitions of time and things that you go through, if you're able to pull from the positive sides of those changes mm-hmm. uh, can really develop you further and, and move you beyond any of the challenges that it may be uh, presenting to you in the midst of those moments. Ultimately, can always become better versus bitter. Oh, that's something to hang on right now. Better versus bitter. So I want to talk about Openbox, which is the human-centered design consultancy that you founded. And just by way of sort of connecting the dots, I know that from high school in Denver, you you got an undergrad in advertising, an MBA and MA in economics, and then you did some work in the world and circa 2009. Is that about right when you founded Openbox? Okay. Help us understand what compelled you to start this business, why you named it Openbox, what's the driving mission, and and what kind of work do you do, and how does it play out there? Yeah. Yeah. 2008, 2009 was a big transition year globally. Before COVID-19, we would have been looking at that as a, a real marker of time to say we're, you know, a lot of things changed. And so Open Box for me was a new iteration of something that I've been doing all my life. And it's taking the principles of design, uh, which is really rooted in understanding how humans um, respond to their environment around them, whether that's through an object, a chair that you're sitting in, mm-hmm. um, through a service. To me, the core idea of design thinking is around understanding the human element, people-centered design, the aspects of who we are. And I felt like during that time period, it we were all going through so many different changes. Um, I've already been touching design in many different ways, but I'd never just pulled it all together to actually uh, do something as formal as being more of a consultant with it and start a firm named Open Box. Um, to do that. And so in 2009, that's when I started Open Box. The name comes from a gentleman by the name of Henry Box Brown. He was a former slave that um, put himself in a box and mailed himself to freedom, crossing the Dixie Line to go into Philadelphia. And it's so ingenious. Aspect, it's such yeah. a great story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's this idea of in order to save yourself, sometimes you have to use and leverage the very thing that's oppressing you to actually free yourself. And for me, open box is all about leveraging the things that I've gone through personally, what we've all gone through, using the framework of design, design thinking to uncover new insights, to free ourselves, to create new opportunity. I mean, Henry Box, to to what you're doing there, it's a lot of it is understanding the systems and the structural integrity of those systems and how to I don't want to say work loopholes, but it's it's leverage them. And you can yeah, do that absolutely. when you understand them. And then sometimes, right. you know, they need to be undermined, which is mm-hmm. you can do that more strategically when you understand how they work, too. That's right. So give us a sample of some of the projects that happen. Yeah, so I'll, I'll expand. So open boxes is three parts. Um, we have the design consultancy firm. So we you know, work with different types of organizations, both for-profit and non-profit. Our last project that we just finished was uh, with MLK Library in Washington, D.C., where they're redoing and rebuilding that library. And we helped them to reimagine what is a library. You know, library has always been a place where you go, you want to check out a book, um, you're doing some research, you get a book. Uh, but today, libraries serve as community spaces uh, where people, when they first move to this country or move to the neighborhood, um, are looking for a connection. It's where you can go get your taxes done. It's where you can get information about um, housing and food. And so the library as an idea, as an infrastructure has changed. And we wanted to make sure that the design, the redesign of this actually spoke to the neighborhood, 
needs. And so we did a lot of community engagement work. Uh, we hosted a lot of different events and moments to help inform the redesign of the library. So we were part of a larger team of other designers and architects, exhibit designers, but we, our aspect of it was focused on community and making sure that we brought their voices in. And then the other aspect of Open Box is Open Docs. It's a documentary film company. And so mm-hmm. we do a lot of different types of documentary films, focus on art and culture and design uh, for the most part. We did a, a large film, documentary film in South Africa about three or four years ago. We just finished the new Bauhaus film, the story of Maholdi Naj when he left Germany and went to Chicago to form the Institute of Design or what became the Institute of Design. And then I also have a venture arm to what we do. We're invested in a lot of different types of companies, everything from robotics to Deem, the journal that we will discuss hopefully as well. That is comprehensive. And it sounds like in terms of your brain that understands systems, you understood also not to silo yourself and that you could actually have a lot more impact if you touched different areas of communication and design and how money moves. Absolutely. I mean, we live in a system and systems design is really important. Um, I cannot think about solving one problem that may cause another problem. And so, you know, I I touch everything from an urban ocean lab that I helped to co-found as a nonprofit all the way to working projects with artists around prisons, prison reform, you know, all the way to arts and looking at robotics and, and what is the future of art and how we can leverage certain technologies like AI to help us enhance. And so it's a full system of thinking, and I'm able to learn so much by touching so many things um, that help to inform what the next thing is going to be as well. Tell me a little bit more about Open Docs and why you felt storytelling in that medium was, a, was an important part. Storytelling is so important in everything that we do. So even on the consulting side, it is definitely an important part for us to make sure that the insights that we're providing are real stories. And to amplify that is to leverage documentary films. And so when we were in South Africa, I spent three and a half years going back and forth. I was doing a lot of ethnography work. Uh, You can call it film work and and research, but it was truly getting to know the people who live there and Mm -hmm. understanding what they're going through. And then we're using film as an output to express that. But it's truly storytelling and a lot of ethnography work. And so we're leveraging design as a way to also do our films and understanding some of those hidden stories that people may not know about is is very exciting for us. And also when people watch our films, one thing that I always say is that for us, it's not about doing a film to answer questions. We're not here to, to inform. We're here to provoke. And what I love most is that if someone leaves our film, we're hoping that we provoke them to ask more questions versus Mm -hmm. us answering questions. I feel it. It's sort of like turning a light on and then the person sees a lot of information that they weren't seeing before. And it just sets them on a a course of discovery and question asking. Here we are having this conversation. It's a, it's a platform for storytelling. And I also believe in that wholeheartedly. I feel like it's also a bridge. You said in the beginning, you said you are a catalyst for creating change in communities. I think storytelling offers that sort of narrative bridge to relate to the humanity of the communities and the people at the center of those stories. No, absolutely. Everything that we're going through right now as a society is being pushed up against the fact that people want to express themselves. People want to feel free. People want to feel heard. People want to matter. And what's happening is that there's only one side of the story that's being told. Even when the other side is being told, it is a distorted story that it does not speak to the truth. And so for me, being a catalyst for building communities is about 
making sure that everyone gets to speak their truth. Film is one way of doing that. Design thinking and working with communities to help inform how their neighborhoods look, whether it's through urban planning or through development, is very, very important because buildings tell stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Our streets tell stories. Our restaurants tell stories. Everyone should have the right to tell their story. Well, along the same line of thinking, you just launched a new project. You mentioned it, DEEM. It's a biannual print journal, an online platform focused on design as social practice. And congratulations on the first issue. Thank um, you. It centers the theme of designing for dignity, and I've been diving into it, and it's it's amazing. It's such a warm and approachable and nutrient-dense form of of storytelling, and I feel really connected to the the people that have been profiled. So congratulations on that. And Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I want to know a little bit about the mechanics, how it came together, the the why and how well, and what it means to you and why you feel like a, a print journal is important right now. The genesis for us was I initially had a, a different magazine um, that I was partnered with called Makeshift Magazine. And uh, it was telling similar background in regards to we were telling global stories, but it wasn't focused on design. It wasn't focused on it, particularly as a social practice. And I felt like there was something missing um, and that there was a gap in the, in the opportunity to tell stories while also giving uh, the audience a framework, um, not a box, but a framework to help shape those stories. And which is why I believe design as a social practice is a really great framework to build a platform upon. Mm-hmm. And Dean definitely represents that. Uh, doing it in print versus only digital is because I do believe that having that tactile feeling is important. And this goes back to some of my Midwestern um, upbringing and working with individuals and family members and being around, you know, people who were industrial designers, which really was, they worked in auto plant, they worked in steel plants, they yeah. made stuff. And I was always a part of a maker's community. Having something that's tangible, that you own, that you can pick up and read is very different experience of just clicking through. Obviously, clicking and strolling is the way of life now. But I also don't want to lose that ability for people to actually touch something and have some sense of connection through their hands that's very different, which is why we spent a lot of time making sure that the paper was right, the layout was right, and we spent a lot of time working towards something that people could hold and truly hold. I appreciate that so much. I'm missing the tactility of the the pre-digital revolution. I agree with you that when you can hold something and you can leaf through it at your own pace and you have an artifact that sort of lives with you and around you, um, it becomes a memento, it becomes a souvenir. And it has a residue that's more personal than a web page you visited once. That's right. And that that impact, I think, it, it can seep in and the stories can feel like something you can hold. And I know that's a metaphor, but it's also literal. <laughs> when you can hold those stories, you can hold them close to you. I think that's something that's really important. So I, I love that, you know, you're making it accessible on the online platform and you're also making it tangible. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's important to do both. And we understand that, which is why it's bi- biannual. You know, it's, it's not a monthly and it is a journal. And that's also something that was really important for us, that the journal speaks to some of the academic side of this and the rigor, Mm -hmm. um, making sure that there's real rigor around the stories, rigor around the research, as well as something that's a journal that you can always come back to. Uh, I don't expect someone to just sit and read all the way through it and just kind of throw it off to the side. I'm hoping that people go back to this, um, that even though it's biannual, even a couple of years from now, they're coming back to this first issue because it's something there that they weren't ready for. And now they're like, oh, huh, I think I read about that. Mm-hmm. Let me go back 
and, and, and go back and, and read more about what that meant then. Mm-hmm. And the stories are very, there is an academic rigor to them. They have substance, but they also have a real warmth and humanity to them, which is the kind of thing that doesn't make it feel like homework. Absolutely. So can we dive a little bit deeper into your creative process? Because I'm yeah, I'm fascinated because you do touch so many systems and so many ways to interface with communities and, and make things. You've talked about human-centered design. You, you mentioned people-centered design, which is, I know, your, your focus. Mm-hmm. And can you break down for us what people-centered design is and why that's at the yeah. center of your work? No, absolutely. I, I would say that what distinguishes us both as Open Box, the design firm, as well as Deem, the journal, is our ability to understand the impact of culture in everyday life. And as individuals, the people-centered portion, we are all influenced by our environment. Our environment consists of so many different elements and, and inputs. Some of that is the fact that you and I can align on what it means to be from the Midwest, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a culture in the Midwest. Uh, and understanding how that helps to inform how we make decisions and how we may connect with something is really important. The other piece of this is also our ability to dive deeper into culture as a Black person, and mm-hmm. understanding this country and understanding our relationship to this country and what that means from a cultural standpoint is really important. Just by nature of being born, I would say similar to maybe women, we are born very dynamic. We're born where we have to have be multifaceted. I can't just check off one box and focus on one thing because so many things affect my everyday life. And understanding how that works is really important to design. And I would say that the challenge with how do we move forward, particularly at the COVID, particularly after things are going in social justice, is that everyone has to understand how they're being informed and make sure that they have people who can represent that voice in their organization. And so our design process is always about making sure that we have real people who can be uh, have real insight into the work that we're doing. And those individuals get to bring their whole self to the office, to the project. This is not about just taking frameworks off of a shelf or taking your education and just trying to apply it. It's how do you live your everyday life? How are you human? People want to talk to human beings. Um, when you're sitting and you're asking someone in a neighborhood about their life, you're not just doing some survey to check off a box to see if they like a certain type of a latte, you know, at a coffee shop. You're asking them about their life. Like what, what makes them tick? The coffee shop is really just this interplay between their life as a way for them to move within their life. It is not just, it's not a place where we're all just a destination. Um, it is a place that plays into our neighborhood. And we want to make sure that we're understanding the culture behind the way people are living their lives, not just checking boxes on what their desire is and how they just want to spend their money. That makes perfect sense. And it also speaks to the sort of ethnographic component that you've yes. always been involved yeah. in. But it also speaks to the idea that we can't just apply... Whatever our notions are as designers, we can't just slap them on a community and expect them to adhere, like to conform to that. It really needs to reflect the needs of the community. And in order to understand what those needs are, you need to know the community. That's right. But I think that's scary for a lot of people. It's because it's messy. It's not a you can't start with a recipe and follow it. You you have to do the work. And then you have to construct something from all of these new unknowns. (laughs) Right. Which is why design as a social practice is so important because you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And the challenge with a lot of design today 
is that we just want to get it done and we're not willing to do the work that will allow us to get it done right, which require us not only to be curious, but to be vulnerable and to go in not as experts, but as people who can hold space. The team that we have, it's all about holding space. It's about allowing whoever we're working with to actually express who they are. And we're holding that space. We're, we're leveraging some of our frameworks to prompt people, but we're not coming in as experts. And when you let go of trying to be an expert and come in with your, your preconceived notions, then that's when greatness happens. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designers Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, 
Whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. That's when you get to discover what you didn't know and make something that's more collaborative with the community yeah, with it. That's correct. And that's everything, because if the community feels invested and they feel some ownership and they feel reflected in what's building around them, then they don't feel ignored, unheard, that's and right. dismissed. And that's the problem. What's going on right now is that people, they don't see themselves in their cities anymore. Yeah. And that is why you're, everyone is feeling this intensity around whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's everything we're going through with COVID-19. It's like, where am I? Where do I belong? Neighborhoods and cities are changing so quickly. And people are walking home. And it's a visceral feeling to feel like you're out of place, you're unwanted, and you don't have a home. And I would say that Cities are changing faster than technology is changing, I would argue. Uh, you know, what new iteration of iPhone do we need? I don't need another new button. But I do want to feel that when I go to the grocery store, if I walk down the street, that I feel safe mm-hmm. and I feel like I belong. And it's your people. That's right. That's right. I, I feel a lot of urban design has been done to sort of mitigate or damage control groups of people that they feel are, I don't know, a threat or yeah. problematic. And I, and that's just, when you understand the psychological impact of that, it's, it's not conducive to thriving communities. Absolutely. It's not. So, I mean, you kind of touched on it and we're, we're going there. You believe that we can help inform the future of cities by thinking about people first. And, and that's the, the thesis of what you're talking about, this people-centered design. And it's, Absolutely. And so the program then is to do this ethnography, to understand the communities, to reflect the people, and then design buildings and objects around that, as opposed to buying land, engineering, figuring out how to get the most return on your investment in terms of the real estate square footage. And in many ways, you know, just try and capitalize on Absolutely. the people, which isn't, yeah. it's, it's not a two-way relationship. It's egocentric and it's, it's not community-centered. No, it, it is not. And I, w- I would even go further and say that we have over-indexed on masculine-built societies that don't take into consideration anyone else. And for me, the term masculine does not necessarily just mean male versus female. It's the fact that when it comes to individuals tapping into different sides of who they are, unfortunately, we have been forced to think in a certain manner. Just like every individual, I believe, can have a masculine and feminine side, what we've done is push society in the fact that we have no other side to who we are. Feminine side doesn't necessarily mean, hey, I'm soft and flowery. A man can be soft and flowery just like a woman can be strong. What I am saying is that the way that we built cities is that we built them in such a cold way that we have no other aspects to look at it. We're not looking at it in a multidimensional way. We're only looking at it through the eyes of building up. You have a permit. Um, Mm -hmm. You have all these regulations. Uh, you have square footage and that cost per square footage. And then I would add that, yeah, there are certain aspects of having only white men in control of building this has caused a real problem. Mm-hmm. And we need to change that problem by introducing different people into the power structure, not just into the organization itself, 
diversity inclusion, a lot of times only want to introduce people into the entry level and people get excited that, oh yeah, we, we have a, lots of diverse people and interesting people in our office, but they, they don't have power. The change that needs to happen right now is that we have to change the power dynamic. And in order for our cities to survive, we need more voices. We need lots of different voices. And I would say we need to actually over-index on those voices in a very <laughs> in a very clear and precise manner in order for us to go to the next level. I am right there with you. And I think that's a, a pronounced conviction and intention of this podcast, but also um, my personal philosophy. I'm really interested in this idea of masculine and feminine. Yeah. Uh, I know that we all both have, have both energies. And I think that our, you know, just to paint a really broad brushstroke picture, our, our cities were sort of built around the hunterer part and not the gatherer part That's right. of, of us. And it's a little bit more about control and domination of both organizing chaos and nature and not about nurture where, and that's the feminine aspects that you're talking about that need to creep into our urban planning. And I totally believe I was just talking to a sustainability expert and we were aligning on the fact that this, this new era that we're in the Anthropocene uh, needs to be feminist in order for us, for our species to survive. Yes, and that is a big part of the type of work that we love to do. It's a big part of the intentions even in, our, in the organization um, where I, I make sure that we do have strong women leadership at Open Box. Matter of fact, all, all the leadership at, at the firm is women. Um, it just kind of worked out that way. There was a lot of intention around it, um, but it's also something that I know is, is very important for the organization um, it was also important even for the start of the magazine of team to have our chief editor who you know alice who you'll speak with as well to have a really strong voice to make sure that there it is a balance and so we have to be intentional we have to over index because we've over indexed on the other side mm-hmm. and it's grossly out of balance. We, it's grossly out of balance. Grossly yeah. out of balance. I was always doing research on you and, you know, reading into some of the work that Openbox has done and reading Dean Journal. And one of the things you do so well is communicate. It says right there on your bio that you have a focus on making big ideas tangible for all people. And I found that to be true in doing the research, um, reading through some of the, the case studies and, and projects you've done. It was easy for me to understand really complex ideas based on how you spelled it all out. You know, some, some of it was data visualization. A lot of it was qualitative. There were narrative arcs. It was really a, a work of beauty. <laughs> and you. I'm really impressed by that. And so I, I would love to understand a little bit about how you do that. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not magic. I know. You know what, what's one thing that I, I would say that's pretty, interesting with the people because it does it starts with the team it starts with the people and our way of being one is organizations that are going to make it to the next level after covid and everything that's changing are those that were built um with everyone on the team having a say and a voice and being a part of the large organization I've always said that open box, everything I do, it's not about me. It's not about my ego. This is not the Marquis story. I need everyone to win. It's the collective success of every individual that makes us all better. And so it starts with that because that means that everyone can call us, call each other out. So the spirit of critique is so important. Everything that we do is done with, hey, the yes and critique of how can we continue to make this better mm-hmm. and working with each other and not taking it personal. And so mm. that's the first aspect. The other aspect is being really good at listening. You know, I always say, are you listening or are you waiting to be heard? And a lot of times both passive and active communication is built around individuals ego so that people really don't listen anymore. 
most people are just waiting to be heard when they're not speaking. And with the work that we do, when we are engaging with community, when we are doing the work, we make sure that we are truly listening over and over again. And those are just some of the simple insights to what we do. And I would say Dean Journal is the same thing. The spirit of New and Alice and the partnership that we have, it's very much a, a equal partnership across the three of us. We're always making sure that each one of us is heard and listening, um, regardless of how the origin of the magazine started. To me, a good idea isn't powerful until you give it away. And I not I have no need to try to protect or control anything because the only way that it's going to turn into magic is by having other people critique it, question it, and grow it. So mm-hmm. those are a couple points of you know how we've been able to do that type of work and simplify complicated um, ideas. That speaks again to that sort of feminine energy of nurturing. Um, mm-hmm. When you think about a, a mother's job is to, you know, keep her child safe and fed and provide, you know, stimuli and input and education so they can navigate the world. But then it's also to have, be hands off and let that personality develop into its own person and find themselves. And it sounds like that's what you are in the habit of doing, both with the projects at Open Box, with the films at Open Docs, and with the the journal is prime the soil, fertilize it, make sure every all the seeds are tended to and let it grow. And then it's going to grow into its own thing. Yes, absolutely. I have a, a question that I'm bothered by in the world yeah. as I'm listening to you and it and I I see the intention and attention you give to understanding how systems work and I know that there um, are broken systems and also s- systems that were designed in really faulty and malicious ways that have given way now to a series of crises obviously we're in a p- global pandemic we're in an economic crisis climate crisis social crisis and also crisis of confidence and all of the systems that have been lying, oppressing and creating inequity. I know you've been thinking about leveraging these systems and redesigning them for equity. I mean, I don't want to project onto you, but that's how your brain works. (laughs) So I'm assuming that you have. (sighs) I'm sorry. I'm so frustrated with our civic and legislative strategies. And why don't they include more and better design thinking along this framework? And how do we make a case for that? So that it's not just political will that's our future is beholden to. I would say, you know, some of the work that we've done up to this point um, definitely represents that opportunity and that way forward in understanding how to redesign the system. Mm -hmm. And that's the first step is recognizing that the system is broken and understanding that it needs to be fixed. The work that we were doing in South Africa and my time down there and listening to their openness around uh, being very brave and having these conversations around race or around economics, about who owns what. And it was very much in your face. And if it was new for you, it was like, it could be overwhelming. But I feel like here in the States, we just continue to tiptoe around because we uh, can see, you know, in quotes that things look okay, but there's the undercurrent of something that's greater that's going to really destroy us all. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that you cannot... You cannot allow one portion of your society to fail and not believe that it's going to cause us all to fail. So you could not design a system where blacks did not have access to education, access to healthcare, access to food, um, and not believe that it's actually going to affect everyone. Because if you look at really poverty levels Um, what it means to be poor in the black community. It's very different than what it means to be in the white community. In the black community, it's not always about education or failure of education. It's failure of access to power and the ability to actually employ oneself 
to do and to make decisions because we're always been under control. We can't actually have access and mobilize and get things done. Within you know white communities where I'm from, it, it is very different um, when it comes to what it means to be poor. Unfortunately, both groups are being affected. Uh, you know, when I go to Ohio, when I go to the Midwest, a lot of my friends who are, are, are white are suffering, suffering, and sometimes suffering worse than black communities. Um, but no one's telling that story. And unfortunately, there is a percentage of society that continues to ignore the larger problem. And they continue to allow one group to represent the fears of a country <laughs> and the, uh, the problems of a country when a lot of these things are so manufactured mm-hmm. that they believe that it's going to benefit them even more, and it's not. And so for me, it's about recognizing that there is a problem, mm-hmm. uh, understanding how we need to undesign those problems before we can actually start to redesign and continue to design better systems for everyone. But until we recognize the first step, we'll never be able to do anything else. Well, I totally agree with you. And I've been thinking about this too. And I think you're always going to have that, that percentage who is invested in denial, avoidance, ignorance and resistance because they think it's going to benefit them more or fear. They're just Mm -hmm. blinded by a sort of unfounded fear. Mm -hmm. But then there's an enormous percentage of the population that just needs to see a better way. They're not necessarily invested in resisting the idea. They're probably benefiting from the current system and, you know, all the privileged ways that they can benefit. And maybe they haven't paid attention. But th- those are the people, like sand, they, they can be washed with the tide to the better system mm-hmm. and undermine the structural integrity of the faulty system in the process. That's right. But it, and that's, that's why storytelling is yes. so important. Right. And we as designers, we have a a moral responsibility to make sure that the integrity of our stories are real. Um, The same way that we need to step up when it comes to the building materials that we're using, um, when we're building neighborhoods, when we're building homes. Are we building homes to last? Are we building things that can get them through uh, a whole generation? Or are we just building things that are going to go into a landfill? I really push designers to step up and be more responsible and not just hide behind our fancy CAD design or pushing pixels. This stop. Let's step forward as leaders. We can actually make such a difference by holding our ground and saying, this is what we refuse to design anymore. These are the things, these are the plans that we're not going to approve anymore. And we're going to make sure that the integrity of our field is held. And we're not going to let any political or social or monetary thing get in the way. Because ultimately, everything that we do tells a story. And storytelling is so important. And when I don't see myself in the stories, then I don't see myself at all. I'm just letting that sink in because that it's really powerful. And there's a art historian that says objects don't lie. That's right. And I, I, I believe in that. And I think about the kind of artifacts that we're creating these disposable artifacts that don't represent the people who live here. It doesn't build a thriving tomorrow. It's, it's a system ready for collapse. That's right. With all that in mind, so that's kind of the macro. I I really do want to zoom way in on the micro, which is you personally. Keeping in mind that in order to achieve some of the things that we've been talking about, everyone will need to undergo personal change. Mm -hmm. How do you personally work with yourself as you move through change. I mean, psychologically, there are all kinds of like 
little yeah. resistance to it. You know, it's scary. And even if you're ideologically on board with change, it can still be daunting. Yeah, um, but it's a, it's a practice, right? I mean, mm-hmm. for me, I practice every single day living the type of change that I really want to see at a very micro level. And that begins with asking myself one question every day is what have I done today that really matters at a very simple level. And to me, what matters is even it's walking down the street and giving eye contact to a homeless person to see, to let them know that, yeah, like I see who you are, whether you give them money or not, just simple gestures. Mm -hmm. Um, Acknowledge their humanity. Yeah. Picking something off the ground. It's not, me trying to save the world or saying, look at me, I'm Mr. Goody Tushu guy. It's me intentionally putting myself in a place where I'm feeling a bit more vulnerable, but carrying through the vulnerability by touching and, and connecting with my environment. This opportunity with the unfortunate of COVID-19 has forced us all to slow down, be more reflective. I've had to make a lot of different pivots um, over the last three months, I had to slow down. I'm usually traveling over 100,000 miles a year, and I've been grounded for the last, you know, three months. So who am I and what am I, how am I going to reinvent myself? Um, what do I need to purge? Um, that's another practice that I, I do as much as possible. What do I need to get rid of? Whether it's things in my closet, whether there's old ideas, people in my life, things we have so much one time you know one thing that's really important that you can't see something come into your life if there's no room for it mm. right right and so you're like why isn't something why isn't this happening why isn't this change being manifested well you haven't made space for it because you have too much clutter in your life and it could be clutter in your head it could be clutter in your closet it could be clutter in your inbox whatever that is and so at right. a micro level I practice these small moments of decluttering, making sure that I'm staying close to what it means to feel vulnerable, connecting with people, making sure that I don't get to a place of success, which we all are striving for. But I never want to be so successful that I can't have just a regular conversation where my, my test for that is you probably get this being in the Midwest. You know, if your car breaks down, you know, say in between Toledo and Detroit or mm-hmm. wherever you may be, and you need someone to come pick you up and they pitch you your car into their um, towing truck. And now you got to sit next to some <laughs> person that you don't know, and you may have to drive with them for an hour. Can you hold a conversation? Can you actually engage? Are you that curious? And I've always used it as a, as a metaphor for me making sure that my Midwestern ways, my ability to talk to all types of people who really just want to have a nice house and a boat and go up on Lake Erie uh, <laughs> to hang out, that that's okay, right? Not everything needs to scale. And we've pushed everyone to scale everything all the time. Go big or go home. Mm. And I'm Again, always managing that in my own life to make sure that I can continue to hear people and I can listen and I'm not trying to you know, wait for them to hear me. So that's the micro level of how do I do it on a day-to-day basis. I, I love that because I feel like you just you just shared with us not only your personal proactive way of working through change, but it was, it was such concrete information that we can all use for ourselves. <laughs> Thank you so much. You talked this whole interview about holding space and I, I agree with you that that's really important. I want to make sure to leave space in this interview for anything that I might not have asked anything that you want to express a, a question you want to pose to our listeners. Is there anything on your mind that you'd like to share? The only question that I would say, and, and I said it earlier, is what have you done today that really matters? And are we as a society willing to go deeper? And if you're not, then challenge yourself. You know, the social challenges that we're facing today 
isn't a hashtag, right? This is not a hashtag moment. This is your neighbor. Um, George Floyd was someone's neighbor. He was someone that sat next to you at a basketball game or at lunchtime in high school. And I want to make sure that we are all reaching out to each other because I don't care who is being hurt. I don't care the color of their skin. I don't care their gender or sexual orientation. Everyone absolutely matters. And what's going on in regards to Black Lives Matter is because there's been a portion of society that has been left behind. And I know for some people, you may not totally understand what that means. But again, I go back to say, what have you done today that really matters? Thank you. I do want to mention that I think people are afraid of the discomfort because they're not focusing on the benefit that comes on the other side of discomfort. Like you have to go through it to get to the good stuff, but it is better. And I think sometimes people think the discomfort is just going to lead to more discomfort. And that's not the way to look at it. It's like falling in love. It's awkward and exciting and exhilarating and vulnerable. But we have to practice it. I mean, that's the yeah, challenge yeah. with this country is that we haven't practiced. And to be honest with you, this country is socially out of shape. Yes. This bottom line. They couldn't they could not run a half a mile of, of social engagement at all. <laughs> um, True. And that's that is the problem. So the pain is real. And, and, and we're in a marathon. This is a marathon. COVID-19 mm-hmm. and everything that we're going through right now, it is not a sprint to the finish line of 40 yards. It is not. This is a marathon. And it's going to hurt. And if you are out of shape socially and physically, and you have not put yourself and you've delayed this for so long, it's going to hurt. And... It is not my job to always make everyone feel comfortable right. with the discomfort. It's not right. my job. And it's exhausting. Yes, absolutely. Well, I appreciate everything that you've shared. And I want, I got a sense of what your hopes are for how this country, how we can manifest some positive change. I'd like to know personally in your personal life, your career pursuits, the thriving of your own self and humanity? What, what do you want more of for, for you, for Marquise? I would say for, for me is just this continued pursuit to be myself and to feel freedom with that, you know, to be able to walk down the street and just be me, which is you know, why I love living in New York city does give me some sense of breath in being able to do that, which is very different than when I'm in the Midwest. And I'd love to be able to come home and be in Ohio and feel that sense of freedom and love, no matter who it is and, and move past some of the ways that we've forced people to live. And I would say that that's what everyone is looking for. Everyone just wants to breathe yeah. And that's that's me. I just I just want to breathe. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I I really appreciate your time and your attention and the work that you're doing in the world, and I'm excited to to share your story with with our listeners. I really really appreciate it, and it's definitely been an honor. Looking forward to uh just being connected and and connecting with your audience in any way. I mean, people can reach out if they have questions or want to connect. I'm always open. Thank you for that. Hey, thanks for listening. Go to our show notes to see images of Marquise, his work, and find links to all of his endeavors like Open Box, Open Docs, and Dean Journal. It's worth noting at Open Box, there's a link to a deep and actionable resource list compiled by Carlisa to support the Black Lives Matter movement. To get to the show notes, you can click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app. Or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. 
Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It totally helps us out. We also love it when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.